AI. Organizations have spent the last few years and lots of money trying to be more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive. And yet, author Gina Cox says the results have not been great. So the reality is a couple of years have gone by and I see now the headlines that say enough progress, not enough progress has been made on diversity and inclusion. And um, it's partially because of this, this you know, the, the uh, uh, incorrect focus, if you would, on the training that has been done and a disproportionate focus on diversity acceleration and not enough attention to the real issue, which is the day-to-day -day experience of the people who are meant to be the beneficiaries of the work. Hi, I'm Irene Silver with the Vanguard Network. Gina Cox is an organizational psychologist and executive coach. Her new book, Leading Inclusion, analyzes why so many organizations seem to be floundering in a sea of good intentions. She was a session leader at a Vanguard Dialogue on DEI. Former public TV journalist Ken Stone was moderator. They talked about the missteps and misapprehensions about DEI, and particularly the leadership challenges it poses. There are some people on one side of the distribution, CEOs, I mean, or C-suite leaders who clearly understand this issue uh, very well and have maybe understood it for a long time and are doing all kinds of proactive things that, that to support, uh, to give evidence of their understanding. And then you have the ones on the other extreme of the distribution who um, are may not may not be doing much, may not necessarily understand this issue, and there really is no evidence, you know, that that they do. Uh, and then, but I think most people fall in the middle. Most senior leaders fall in the middle. They have some desire to understand the issue, might even uh, be doing some things that they perceive to be proactive in addressing the issues but maybe inadvertently doing the wrong things or ineffectual things. Because in fact, I'm not convinced that most leaders who desire to do this get good advice about what they should do. When we talked last week, we did a little pre-interview and my notes say that you said DEI is BS. Uh, I think you said that. Uh, could you explain I did, that? I did say that. I said it out loud. I, and, and whenever I say it, I say, okay, everybody who works in the diversity and inclusion profession is going to come gunning for me. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'll have to hide behind the woman that wrote the book, Diversity Inc. She wrote this book that basically said, we're spending all these billions of dollars. What are we getting for it? My, my perspective is not that. I think her perspective is accurate, but I'm coming at this from a slightly different perspective, which is to say that I think it is BS because when I think of so-called diversity and inclusion programs and initiatives and all of those kinds of things that have capital letters in the titles are done certain times of the year for certain groups of people, I, it lets me know that people don't understand a key thing, which is that diversity and inclusion is not, it's BS, it's a subset of overall leader effectiveness. So either you are an effective leader whose repertoire includes the ability to effectively lead, you know, 100% of your available workforce, uh, of your workforce and of your available uh, talent pool, or you are not. So I don't, I say this is a subset. It's not a separate thing. It can't just be run by so-called chief diversity officers or even by chief human resources officers. It really needs to just be a part of how we define what effective leadership looks like. And I might add quickly, there are some additional advantages to doing that beyond what we will surely talk about in terms of the outcomes. I think that the other advantage of talking about it this way is that really it's not an optional thing. And, and I think most of us could agree with that. 
Yeah, I mean, when you started uh, 20 some odd years ago uh, in your role as a corporate advisor and coach, DEI, was it that much of of uh, people's attention? Was it just one of the things that you were coaching executives on and, and working with corporations? Yeah, it, it was only one thing. And in fact, uh, even to this day, very few leaders would uh, initiate a conversation about this topic. It's still a somewhat taboo topic. Maybe taboo is the wrong word, but it is a topic that people shy away from. I'm so aware of this that I am also very much, uh, in, you know, I look for ways to bring people into the conversation so they know there's nothing to be afraid of. This is, we're just talking about humans in the workplace and, if, and, and about leadership effectiveness. So that, that way of framing it also helps with that challenge. But 20-something years ago, I don't know why you're reminding me that it was this long. Um, the truth is that, that it was not talked about at the, at the top levels of organizations. It was always thought of as something that the diversity and inclusion people did over there. And then if you even take the structure of an HR department, which is where that work typically resided, within the HR department, it was probably the least powerful or influential group within the HR department. So it was sort of siloed and people who went into that work tended to sort of come from two different you know, perspectives. There either were people who were so interested in this and really wanted to make a difference. They were willing to tolerate not having much support. They would still do whatever it would take even though it wasn't making a great impact. Or frankly, there were people who found themselves into that work because within HR departments perhaps it was um, work where maybe people who had were sort of semi-retired or were not considered to be on the fast track to whatever there could be might find themselves by accident, never really got a lot of focus or attention and still does not in the way that it ought to. Implicit bias training. You think there's too much emphasis on that. Uh, what do you mean? Well, there are a lot of reasons I, reasons I think that, but let me just sort of lay out the scenario, the landscape as I currently see it, which is to say that George Floyd was killed in May of 2020 and things changed. When I say things, I'm talking about the ether changed. We were walking around in a world that, at least certainly I, from what I could see, was walking around in a world that felt a little bit different. I think humans writ large had a moment where they went, what the heck is going on here? How is this even possible? And I think that was global. In response to that, I saw organizational leaders, some stepped out and say, you know, we didn't understand things. There's some things we didn't know were happening. They were right in front of our eyes. We didn't know. We didn't understand them. We want to learn more. We want to do better. There, that, I think that happened. I think that was that really happened. In response to that, a whole industry sort of exploded with solutions. And the solution that was the number one most proffered solution was implicit bias training. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I have known about implicit bias, which is real, it's well-documented. Uh, there are lots of tools to measure it. And it, you know, I, I, I know enough about the neuroscience to know that this is, this is all real. So I'm not saying that implicit bias is not real. What I am saying is I don't know how it came to be that that was the number one solution offered across the world partly, but certainly in the United States, it just seemed that way. And all of a sudden, my clients were saying, we want implicit bias training. Executives were saying, we want it to be new. We want the neuroscience. We need to understand the neuroscience. So what really happened was one thing that happened was this is, there has a disproportionate uh, focus on training related to implicit bias training, I mean, uh, training re relating to implicit bias. Another thing that has happened was that there has been a disproportionate uh, emphasis on diversity hiring. 
but if and and then concomitantly a disproportionate lack of emphasis on the things that I talk about, which is sort of leading inclusion. But the implicit bias piece is highly problematic for a variety of reasons. I think it was it became the number one solution because it's something that you could label, you could define, and everybody understands that if you can get humans to connect a little bit more closely, then that would be a good thing, and, and it is. But there's also all the data that shows that, in, that insisting that people uh, are taught or learn about implicit bias training and then expecting that their behavior will change because they do that, number one, will be a disappointment. It doesn't automatically change behavior. And there are even people who have a very negative reaction to being asked to be in training about implicit bias. About implicit bias. So the reality is a couple of years have gone by and I see you know, the headlines that say, enough progress, not enough progress has been made on diversity and inclusion. And um, it's partially because of this, this, you know, the, the uh, uh, incorrect focus, if you would, on the training that has been done, and a disproportionate focus on diversity acceleration, and not enough attention to the real issue, which is the day to day experience of the people who are meant to be the beneficiaries of the work. Yeah, on your website, you have uh, 10 tips for DEI and, and working on DEI. And one of them was spotting systemic bias. Uh, I would think that's part of a big problem, particularly for folks in the C-suite. They never see it. Yeah, because implicit bias is great, except that it's really only getting on the, to the relationship between me and my immediate group of people, or maybe me and somebody I work with. And, and it's sort of a very narrow point of view. It's, in, it's important, but it isn't the, 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 the core issue. Sis, the systemic bias, though, is really where the opportunity exists for leaders to, to really make a difference in the organization. And what do I mean by systemic bias? It's simply this notion about if you think about how do we ever get here? How do we get to a situation where there is underrepresentation of people from who have with particular variations in the workforce? How do what caused that? What are the factors in this organization that give rise to a situation either through in the recruiting process, in the promotion processes, in the pay processes, in the career mobility processes, and a variety of other kinds of processes, and of course culture that have given rise to a situation where only certain people do certain jobs. Only certain people have high visibility. Only certain people are, are in the executive suite. So when I talk about systemic bias, I'm talking about, in fact, the processes, the, the, the way we do business, the way we work with employees and customers. We've always done it this way. We haven't given it a second thought. We didn't do it with malice forethought. We didn't do it with the intention necessarily, I don't think. Uh, maybe some did, but I don't, I'm not walking around thinking companies are, were intentionally saying we will never have, you know, a Black woman in the C-suite as, you know what I mean, like that. I don't think that's the case. Um, it's really more been these processes have been in place. They've been operating for decades and hundreds of years in some cases, and they've just, it's just been, been thus. We've got to change those. And so, and you're saying that the system basically benefits, uh, well, folks like me, uh, uh, you know, um, somewhat educated uh, white males, um, we find the game easier. Well, that might be true, but even that I think is, 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 a, is may not even be the whole thing. It's just that 
traditionally, the organizations have been set up by people who have this particular background and these particular characteristics. And so as you go looking for additional talent, as you go looking for people to promote, you know, you go to the same school you went to, you think for pe the people must all have an MBA from Harvard or whatever, because that's all you know. And over time, you know, this is what happens. Um, a good way, I think one, one question I love to ask executives uh, that hopefully makes them think a, a little bit is, I, I want to know two things. Tell me about the composition of the workforce in your organization that generates the primary revenue. So they could be called sellers, salespeople, or business development, or a variety of titles, depending on you know, the nature of the business. Tell me about that workforce where the revenue is coming into the organization. Okay, so now we've narrowed down that group. Now, among this group of people, tell me about their characteristics. It could be a variety of demographic characteristics, not just race, you know, gender, ethnicity, LGBTQ status, whatever you think is important. And by the way, if we're having a global conversation, it won't just be race, it could be a variety of other things. So then once I start, when they start thinking about this, they, they begin to recognize that traditionally the power source in a company is the revenue generator, the person who's you know, out there making those dollars. Or another group with a similar degree of influence are the product innovators, especially in tech and manufacturing, the engineering, the people who know, who have the big ideas and who are going to take us to the next planet, let's say, in a tech company, right? They have a lot of power and influence. What, are the, what is the characteristic of that group? So I, I start with these two groups very specifically in every company because the pattern is very clear. Most companies will not put people into their client-facing, high-risk, from a, from a revenue, uh, revenue at risk positions who do not look like them. It just doesn't happen. I don't think anybody sat down and said, here's the script. We will not put these people into this position. But what, this is where the implicit bias comes in. And I've actually seen this play out in conversations with senior leaders. I have had senior leaders say, well, you know, we did not think our big ticket client would accept having a Gina as, their, as leading the, the, the team, the engagement for this company. We didn't think it was gonna happen. We never took the risk. Some people will say that, it's, but, but most of the time, people haven't just not even thought about it, right? So it's, it just happened and there we are. That was executive coach and author Gina Cox talking with journalist Ken Stone at a Vanguard Network Dialogue. Dialogues and podcasts like this are just some of the membership benefits of the Vanguard Network, which organizes events, publishes content, and connects C-suite leaders. Our mission is building high-performance leadership. If you'd like more information about us, please visit our website at thevanguardnetwork.com. I'm Irene Silber. Thanks for listening.